Praise God. Go ahead and turn to our master text today in 1 Corinthians 13. And we're continuing with our series, um, Greater Grace. And in this series, we've been talking about ways to walk in God's greater grace and divine favor. Um, <clears throat> so as you're turning there to our master text, I just want to say that I am kind of excited about this teaching today because uh, I believe that God has us on the road to greater things ahead by learning the things that we've been learning these last few weeks. And uh, by now, after three previous teachings leading up to today, I think you might all be zoned in to uh, what we've been discussing so far. So let me uh, test your knowledge a little bit. What is it? What's the way to experience greater grace that we've been talking about? Humility. Humility. Thank you very much. You uh, all have been listening. I'm very pleased about that. Let me say also as we get going here before we read our master text that I, I really believe that what God is doing with this series is not a reprimand from God, but he's setting us up for more blessing and more favor. You believe that? But as I said at the end of last week's teaching, you know, in order to get in on what God wants to do in your life and mine, we've got to give him something to work with, don't we? Yep. Don't, don't we? <laughs> okay, all right. Glad we're all on the same page. So his work in us has to go deeper than it ever has before if you want to get to a, a new place of a higher level of grace and favor. So, again, before we read our master text, what do you think, uh, I've, I've entitled the, the teaching today, Symptoms of the Most Dreaded Disease. So what do you think that I'm referring to? What do you think, in the context of what we've been talking about in this series so far, what do you think the most dreaded disease is? Pride. Pride. There you go. Bingo. That's exactly what it is. It's pride. And I'll elaborate more in a minute on why that's the case. So this master text is a familiar one. It's the so-called love chapter in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And I'll explain after we read it why I've chosen this text for this particular teaching. So if you're at 1 Corinthians 13, let's go up and go ahead and stand up and let's honor the reading of the Word of God. And this is a short master text today, just verses 4 through 8. And it says this, Love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it's not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. And all God's people say, Amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Praise God. So the reason we opened up with that master text from 1 Corinthians 13 is because, you see, 1 Corinthians 13 is a list of the characteristics of love, which if you didn't already realize this, or maybe had not considered this, um, love and the, and the characteristics of love are synonymous with humility. So as you see on the screen there, our key concept today is that humility equals love equals humility. Their, their characteristics are very, very similar. Now, on that note then, to truly love a person then, as we saw there in that master text, to truly love a person is to think less of oneself and more of the other person. 
to think less of oneself and more of the other person. Now, I gave you a, a quote last week from Thomas Akempis, the uh, 14th century German monk, and uh, his book, The Imitation of Christ, is a pretty hard-hitting book. A lot of smack-you-between-the-eyes truths in that book. I'm going to give you another one here today as it relates to our topic. And he says this, because you still love yourself excessively, you are afraid to submit yourself completely to the will of others. Ow. Yeah. Now, Look, I believe in seeing yourself as God sees you, okay? So this doesn't mean that, that we're supposed to regard ourselves as worms or anything. We're children of God. We're king's kids. So all that Thomas Akempis is saying here is that we should regard ourselves honestly and accurately without doing as the world does and, and uh, loving ourselves excessively, as in 99% of our thought lives being devoted to ourselves and everyone else is a very distant second. That's what he's referring to there. And that's honestly the way most people live their lives, even people within the church, unfortunately. See, when a person is easily offended, I'll give you that example. When a person is easily offended and gets their feathers ruffled at the smallest provocation, that is just one example of excessive self-love that Thomas Akempis is talking about there. But just to provide a balance here, I also want to give you the words of Charles Spurgeon, which I think will balance out uh, the words of Thomas Akempis a little bit so we kind of have the proper perspective here. Spurgeon says, it's not humility to underrate yourself. Humility is to think of yourself as God thinks of you. It is to feel that if we have talents, God has given them to us. And let it be seen that, like freight in a vessel, they tend to sink us low. The more we have, the lower we ought to lie. Now, what does that mean? What Spurgeon is saying here that if we have material possessions, which all of you in the room do, we're Americans, we all have material possessions that are extravagantly uh, above and beyond what most of the world has, so if we have material possessions, um, we ought to realize where those blessings came from and not glory in ourselves. That's basically what he's saying. We ought to be quick to be generous and realize the great responsibility on our lives that we've been given with those blessings. You know, I quote Luke 12, 48 quite frequently, the words of Jesus, who said, to whom much is given, much will be required. And to whom much more is given much more will be required. Okay, so like freight in a vessel, those material possessions tend to sink us low. We ought to be willing to be generous with those things and understand our great responsibility. Now, as already stated, our theme today is the dreaded disease. So let me give you some symptoms so you can recognize the illness. So look at the screen. Uh, in this diagram, uh, you see pride there in the middle, and around it are all these different symptoms of the dreaded disease. So let me explain that there's almost no sin that's not connected in some way to pride. So let's look at some of these. Materialism, I think that's an easy one to connect to pride. But how about sexual sins? Why would that be connected to pride? Because when people sin in that way, they're saying, well, I deserve this. And I don't care what God says, I deserve this, I'm going to have this. 
And that's the same thing with every single symptom on the screen there. Outbursts of anger, greed, coveting, lack of empathy toward people and their plight, stubbornness, laziness, selfishness. It's all a result of pride. And I also want to point out, by the way, that the very first sin ever committed in the Garden of Eden was initiated by pride. Did you know that? See, pride was behind that act because the attitude was, well, maybe I should have this. I certainly want it. Maybe I should have it. And maybe God was a bit off in his instruction here. And I think I know what's best for me in this particular situation. That was the attitude. And folks, mankind has been doing that sort of thing ever since. Ever since. And... This list on the screen here that I just showed you is a very partial list, by the way. I could add others, lots of others, as a matter of fact, like resentment, um, unforgiveness, an unrighteous anger. Almost any sin that you can think of has its roots in pride. All right, now, why is this such an important topic that we've been on it for four weeks now? Well, it's because this is a hugely important uh, topic if, if we want to walk in the blessing and favor of God, folks. Because, listen, God detests pride, as I'm about to show you. God detests pride. All right? I'm about to show you that. So um, God has set himself against the prideful, as we saw in some previous teachings, where God says, I give grace to the humble, but I oppose the proud. So God has set himself against the prideful, the Bible says. So we definitely don't want to be in that category of being outside the blessing of God, right? All right, so I'm going to give you some scriptures out of Proverbs right now to kind of give you the idea of how God really feels about pride. Proverbs 8, 3, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. I hate pride and arrogance, evil behavior, and perverse speech. He hates it, the Bible says. In Proverbs 16.5, it says, Everyone who is proud in heart is detestable to the Lord. Be assured that he will not go unpunished. Now, on Proverbs 16.5, I want to elaborate on that for a moment because this verse is really talking about the extreme end of pride where someone resists God altogether. See, if you're in Christ... You still have some pride issues probably that God is working on, but at least you've humbled yourself to know that, that you need God and you're lost without Christ. So that's a beautiful start right there. So you're definitely on your way, but God will then go to work to help you to recognize the hidden pockets of pride in your life so that you can deal with them. And then you can progressively live and operate in uh, a higher realm of the blessing and favor of God. That's his intention for you. So for you and me, folks, this topic is not a salvation issue. If you're in Christ, this is not a salvation issue. It's a sanctification issue. In other words, God wants you to move past our immaturity and live up to our potential so that we can enjoy life to the full and operate in our full anointing. That's what God has in mind. Let me give you another one out of Proverbs. Proverbs 18, 12. Before his downfall, 
a man's heart is proud. But humility comes before honor. That's why this is so important, because our pride can lead to our own downfall. But a heart of humility will precede honor. Doesn't that motivate you? I want to make a, a note here that, you know, humility, listen to this, humility is not a list of rules and regulations that you keep. I think that's a really important perspective that we get today. Humility is not a list of rules and regulations that you keep. It's a condition of the heart. Humility is a condition of the heart. See, you can keep all the rules, folks, and still be prideful. In fact, the essence of religious pride is thinking you've kept all the rules and thus becoming high-minded, self-congratulatory, and judgmental toward others like that Pharisee that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Remember that? So we're not talking about dotting all the I's and crossing all the, the T's of a religious rule book. What we're talking about here is a condition of our hearts. So you see... Another really important perspective right here. Pride just wants to keep a list of rules and leave it at that. Pride just wants to keep a list of rules and leave it at that, never going beyond that to cultivate relationship with God. Man, I, need, I feel like I need to say that again. Pride just wants to keep a list of rules and regulations, check off the boxes and just leave it at that, never going beyond that to cultivate a deep relationship with the Lord. So see, pride, very much like humility, is an inner condition of the heart. Pride and humility are both conditions of the heart. And that's why at the extreme end of pride, the proud in heart will not yield to the Lord at all and will hang on to their self-serving and self-righteous ways right up to the grave. But, folks, in varying ways, we all have different levels of pride. And, listen, pride is its own punishment because it keeps us from enjoying our relationship with the Lord and others. It robs us of peace, siphons our enjoyment out of life, and always causes us to care more about how we appear to others than just allowing us to enjoy other people and not caring so much what they think about us. Are you tracking with me? Yeah. All right. So in spotting the symptoms then, I've given you uh, in this next slide here um, a couple of different categories. The the category on the left of love and humility, which are the characteristics that we just read in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and then the opposing characteristics of selfishness and pride. So let's go down the list really quickly here. So as we saw in the master text, love or humility is patient, but selfishness and pride is often impatient and irritable. Impatient and irritable. Love and humility is kind, but selfishness and pride is reactionary, unkind. Just reacts very quickly, very short fuse. Love and humility does not envy others, but selfishness and pride is dissatisfied and unthankful for what they've been blessed with, so therefore they are envious of others. Love and humility does not boast doesn't put itself on display, doesn't talk about itself all the time. 
But selfishness and pride is indeed boastful, draws attention to itself, builds oneself up even if it's at someone else's expense. Love and humility is slow to speak and has regard for the other person in the conversation. Whereas selfishness and pride is rude and unmannerly. Love and humility is not self-seeking, whereas selfishness and pride, quite the opposite. Everything, all the arrows point in, it's me, me, me. They're wrapped up in themselves. Wrapped up in themselves. Love and humility is not easily angered, but selfishness and pride exhibits no self-control. In the book of Proverbs, it says that a fool's annoyance is known at once. In other words, the fool gets mad and angry and bam, everybody knows it immediately. But a wise person will hold that back. Okay? Love and humility, not easily angered, selfishness and pride, exhibits no self-control, flies off the handle, short temper. Love and humility keeps no record of wrongs, whereas selfishness and pride won't let things go. So if you're working in your bulletin, go ahead and fill those blanks in. Selfishness and pride will not let things go. But I'm going to focus on one particular one on the screen here, and it's this one. Selfishness and pride is wrapped up in self. Everything is about me, 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 myself, and I. So that leads us to the next section of our teaching right now. Where I'm going to talk a little bit about the phenomenon of narcissism. <laughs> now, a few weeks ago, the subject of narcissism came up in a conversation, and it, it occurred to me that in this day and age, many people are plagued with various levels of narcissism. So what is narcissism? Well, the term narcissism, for those of you that may not know this, derives its name from the Greek tale of a young man named Narcissus who became so infatuated with his own image that he rejected all romantic advances because he was so in love with himself that he continually gazed at the image of himself in a pool of water. That's the Greek tale of Narcissus, which gives us the term narcissism. So again, let's define narcissism um, as it's applied today uh, a little better. So um, this is right out of the dictionary. Uh, narcissism is an excessive preoccupation with or admiration of oneself. Conceit. An excessive preoccupation with an admiration of oneself or conceit. Secondly, it could actually be a personality disorder characterized by an exaggerated sense of self-importance, need for admiration, and lack of empathy. Lack of empathy. And thirdly, it's a state in which one interprets and regards everything in relation to me, to oneself, and not other people or things. So it doesn't allow people to look outwardly to the concerns and the needs of others, but everything is all about me. So therefore, they lack empathy. It's all just totally about me, me, me. Okay? Now, I want to pull the audience here for a moment. Can you think of one or more examples of widespread narcissism in our culture today? Throw, throw out an example. 
Hollywood in general is definitely a narcissistic uh, portion of our culture. Absolutely. What else? Say it again. Domestic violence. Domestic violence. That's narcissism. Sure. Because you, you lack empathy toward the person you're supposed to be loving. What else? What? Sorry? Politicians. <laughs> Don't get me started. <laughs> Don't get me started on that. <laughs> we'll be here for a while if you get me started on that one. What else? Facebook. So social media. Thank you. I was kind of waiting for that one because that's the one that I had. Social media. So, yes. Now, listen. I'm not against social media if used properly because I use it myself. But I like Brent's alternate name for Facebook. He calls it Pride Book. <laughs> and I think that's right on. It's a platform whereby nearly everyone who uses it, not everyone, but nearly everyone who uses it, does so to spotlight oneself. My travels, my family, my promotion, my beauty, um, you know, my family, all of that. It's totally uh, a spotlight on oneself. And honestly, I got sucked into that for a while when I first started using Facebook. Um, but I finally woke up and realized, man, I am spending a lot of time just posting pictures of my family all the time. See, pride is sneaky, isn't it? See, we get sucked in so easily if we're not keeping a close eye on what we're doing. It's so easy to be influenced by the culture rather than by the guidance of God's word. Amen. All right, so I want to give you a few more symptoms of pride here. Here's a big one right here. A prideful person can't take advice or correction, but they give it liberally. Pride can't take advice or correction, but they give it liberally. So on that note, Proverbs 12.1, I'm giving you a lot of Proverbs here today. Uh, Proverbs is the book of wisdom. The entire Bible is a book of wisdom, but the book of Proverbs is these short little sayings that are all just designed to be wisdom zingers, if you will. Proverbs 12.1, whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but whoever hates correction is stupid. Stupid. Now, by the way, in case you doubt that that's an accurate word that the Bible actually uses, that word stupid, I'm going to give you the ancient Hebrew right now. That word that's been translated into English as stupid is the Hebrew word bar, which means brutish or brutishness. Stupid like an animal. That's what that word is. So it actually goes beyond our modern day understanding of stupid. It means stupid like a brute beast out in the field. That's what it's referring to. So I want to give you a couple of uh, references from the scripture about that word and its use. Because it appears in other places in scripture. In Psalm 73, 22, it says, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. That's that word bar, brutishness, stupid. All right? And then Psalm 32, 9, Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. That's kind of what... I mean, the, the word bar or stupid isn't used in that particular passage, but that's kind of what that's referring to. It's, a, it's related to those other scriptures. 
Don't be like a horse or a mule, a stupid, brutish animal, which have no understanding but must be controlled by bit and bridle or they will not come near you. Don't do that. Be pliable, be teachable, is what it's saying. Now, by the way, the book of Proverbs is full of verses on being willing to receive correction. See, if you're willing to take correction, you are wise and more likely to prosper, according to the book of Proverbs. But if you are what Proverbs calls stiff-necked or stubborn, and you won't take advice or correction from anyone, then God calls people like that, and I'm going to use another Bible word. This is not my wording. This is the Bible's words. The Bible calls people like that who are stiff-necked and stubborn and won't take advice. It calls them fools. It calls them fools because they are setting themselves up for failure in the future. The Bible says that... that uh, wisdom is gained by many advisors. Listen to people. Listen to your elders. Listen to people who are wiser than you. Okay, that's one way of how wisdom comes. By the way, did you know that in the New Testament, it actually encourages believers to exhort one another and speak the truth in love? But you know why you don't see that more in today's church culture? Because you know what happens when you try to exhort someone in this day and age, don't you? That's what happens. Yeah? And the Bible calls that stupid. See, we ought to be willing to at least listen to what someone has to say because maybe there's some truth in it that will help us. Okay? Now, that reminds me of the story of uh, young Benjamin Franklin when uh, he was just a young man. He was very intelligent, even as a young man, but he was very arrogant and cocky until an older statesman, an older gentleman got a hold of him, and <laughs> this older man said to him, Ben, you are impossible. Your opinions have a slap in them for anyone who disagrees with you, and people find that they enjoy themselves more when you are not around. <laughs> Ouch. Wow. Now, unlike many of us today, who would respond very harshly to that rebuke, Benjamin Franklin didn't do that. He received that rebuke, and he went on to make some changes in his life, and uh, later on he became an important diplomat and statesman in early America. So you see the potential that's available to us when we receive a rebuke from someone? Praise the Lord. Now, I'm going to give you... Uh, I'm going to read a short passage here, here in just a moment from 1 Samuel that highlights this next point right here, this next characteristic of pride, that pride insists on doing things its own way, its own way. But let me give you some context before we read this passage together. So God had told uh, King Saul in the Old Testament, God had told King Saul through the prophet Samuel to go attack the Amalekites, who were a pagan nation, and completely annihilate them. He commanded that no one be left alive, not even the animals. So King Saul took the armies of Israel and went attacked the Amalekites and routed them, but he kept King Agog alive as sort of a trophy and then kept all the best of their livestock for themselves. 
So he partially obeyed, but when it came to something that he really wanted, he's like, uh, I'm going to do this part myself, right? And then the prophet Samuel comes along a little later after the battle and sees the herds of livestock and learns that King Agog had been kept alive. And the word of the Lord came to Samuel for King Saul. And here's where we pick it up. Look at the screen. This is 1 Samuel 15, verses 22 and 23. Zone in on this. Don't miss the truths here. Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obedience to his voice? Behold, obedience is better than sacrifice. And attentiveness is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion, get this, for rebellion is like the sin of divination or witchcraft. And arrogance is like the wickedness of idolatry. That's why this topic is so important. Wickedness, or I should say arrogance, is like the wickedness of idolatry or idol worship. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you, King Saul, as king. Wow. So let's make some observations from that passage. First, on kind of an unrelated note, I'll get back on track in a moment with our topic at hand, but I want to make an unrelated note. Uh, Why would a loving God command an entire race of people to be put to the sword? if God is perfectly loving? Well, it's because these pagans were committing terrible atrocities against humanity, as many pagans did, and God gave them years to repent, years, and they never would. So finally, in God's love, in God's love, okay, he judged the situation and basically said, okay, you Amalekites, Uh, No more crimes against humanity. No more human sacrifices. I've given you ample time to repent. Now your day of judgment has come. So folks, God is loving, but he's also very just. He's patient, not wanting anyone to perish. But his patience does have its limits at some point. And at some point, he'll put a stop to certain things by bringing judgment. That's why we always want to walk humbly before the Lord and be praying for this nation. Well, here's the next observation I want to make out of that passage that's more in keeping with our topic today. In God's eyes, folks, partial obedience is still disobedience. Because what that does, you obey partially like King Saul did, but then you say, well, I'm going to tuck this other little part away for myself and do it my way because in this part of God's instructions, I think I know better what's best for me here. That is absolute, almost an unbelievable level of pride. When God gives you an instruction, God knows everything, and you say, I know more than God does, I'm going to do this this part, I'll do this part God's way, I'm going to do this part my way. Pride. That's pride. And and by the way, this concept of partial obedience being disobedience in God's eyes, we see this both in in numerous occasions in both the Old Testament and the New. And lastly, on this point with this passage on the screen there, you know, folks, it's possible to do what King Saul did here and do your churchy religious duty and yet still be totally disobedient in other areas of your life. 
And to borrow from what we talked about last week, a religious duty void of passion for God doesn't mean very much. Did you catch that? A religious duty void of passion and love for God doesn't mean very much. See, God wants a heart of obedience, not just checking off a religious to-do list to appease our consciences. See, our religion has to go beyond that to hitting home where we live, where we work, where we go to school, even our thought lives, and every aspect of our lives. You know, I used to know a young man in a different church that I used to attend many years ago who, by all outward appearances, was a very godly, passionate young man by the looks of the way that he worshipped and the way he served in the church, but he was secretly immoral, and it eventually cost him his marriage. Okay, So you see, if a person insists on doing things his or her own way, even if they're doing other things that seem very religious, uh, you can see from this passage that we just read that that's not what God is looking for. Okay, God was saying here to the prophet Samuel that King Saul should have done his religious duty, which in this case at that time was the proper sacrifices. But that was not God's ultimate goal, you see, to do a religious ceremony, but then rebel against God in other areas of your life is not going to please God. Are you still with me this morning? Okay, so let me take marriage as an example, if I may. Now, Bill and Paula, you're pretty good sports, so can I use you as a fictitious, hypothetical example? Uh, Okay. (laughs) Okay. So let's say that Bill wants to do the least amount possible to keep his marriage together and keep Paula off of his back. So he, so he, he mows the lawn and does a little bit of work around the house. He goes to work and makes a good living and provides for the household um, and then kisses her good morning and kisses her good night. So he's doing his duty, but he doesn't spend any quality time with her just conversing with her. He never shows her genuine affection or, or uh, other than the obligatory kiss now and then. And then he wonders why she's mad at him half the time. Right? <laughs> well, it's because his heart obviously isn't in the relationship. He's just doing the, his duty, doing the least amount possible. Okay? And That's very obvious to Paula in this example. So she's not happy with the situation. So do you see the spiritual parallel there? Now, I don't know of any problems at all in your marriage, Bill and Paula, so that was just a hypothetical, fictitious example because I know you could take it because you're good sports. So thank you for letting me pick on you there. But do you see the spiritual parallels there? Now, as it relates to our relationship with God, folks, let me say this. Why would we ever want to do the least amount possible to stay in God's good graces? Is that really love for God? Now, folks, I hope you don't see uh, the things that we do to cultivate our relationship with God as just a duty. Like... Oh, I've got to go pray. Oh, I've got to go read my Bible because God's not going to be happy with me if I don't. 
Oh my goodness, I have to go to church today. Right? If that's how you feel about those things, you may need to check your heart because you may need to do, as the Bible says, and stir yourself up in your most holy faith. Praise God. You know what? On a personal note, I never feel like I have to read the Bible anymore. I get to read the Bible because it's the mind of God. It's really, it really is a delight for me now. I don't feel like I have to go to church. I get to go to church. It's not a duty. It's an honor and a delight. It really is. You know, I remember when Donna and I were on our honeymoon, and um, one night, very late at night, we'd already gone to bed, and uh, she, had, she woke up with this splitting headache, and uh, she, we didn't have any Advil or anything to take um, in the hotel room there. And you know what I did? I got up out of bed quickly in the middle of the night and ran out to the store and bought her some Advil. And I didn't feel that, like that was drudgery for me to do that. I delighted in doing it because I love her. And when you are, a, listen. <laughs> Praise God. Here's the point, and when you're, <laughs> you guys, whoo, all right, here's the point, when you are in love with God, you don't see church and other spiritual disciplines as a duty, it's a pleasure, why, because since you love God, you love his things, Okay? You love what he loves. And God definitely loves his church. And he loves it when people spend time with him in his word and in prayer and in worship. You agree with that? Yes. Now, I realize, by the way, this is kind of a side note, but I realize, by the way, that some people will cry foul when you emphasize uh, the, those things and, and uh, they'll accuse you of being legalistic, right? Well, let me ask you this. Would you consider it legalistic if I set aside a certain time of my day to just sit down with my wife and converse with her and talk to her and spend time with her? Would you consider that legalistic? I hope not, because that's not legalism. That's relationship, folks. Okay? Well, why am I saying all this? I mean, what's this got to do with pride, since that's our topic today? Well, it's because when people feel like, you got to get this point right here, when people feel like they've got it so together spiritually that they don't need God's word or they don't need the church because they're above those things now, wow, that is pretty much the epitome of pride. Lord have mercy. Let us never come to that point. You know, I've been serving the Lord 28, 29 years now, and I never feel, and I'm the one teaching, and I never feel like, oh, I just think I'll lay out, to, lay out a church today. I don't, I, you know, I'm beyond that now. I don't need the church. Oh, I think I'll go for a few days and not read the Bible and just do something else. I don't think I need that. I'm in this thing every day. I'm in the Bible every day because I need it. I need it. And I need the church. I need fellowship with the believers, Okay. So, please, 
Don't get to the point where you're so spiritually smug and self-righteous and prideful that you say, I don't need the church anymore. I don't need to read the Bible too much because, you know, I got all that. Come on. Listen, this book is so rich. This Bible is so rich that you'll get something out of it every time you read it. And the proclamation of the Word of God is so rich, you'll pick up something every time you come to church, no matter how many years you've been going to church. I guarantee it. Unless you're just so spiritually hard-hearted and you're sitting back evaluating everything, giving, oh, I give the sermon a six, I give the praise and worship a four. If that's the way you're coming to church, maybe you won't get a whole lot of that out of it. But if you're hungry for the things of God, I don't care who's teaching, a little kid could be up here. And you'll get something from it. If you're hungry for the Word of God. Praise the Lord. All right. So let's start to move to a close here by taking a few minutes and talking about the cure of this dreaded disease. How do we deal with this dreaded disease? Well, first of all, I love this passage out of Isaiah 66. It says, this is the one I will esteem, he who is humble and contrite in spirit, who trembles at my word. He trembles at my word. In other words, you're quick to do it. You're quick to do it. So, The cure, then, is simply to humble yourself before both God and man. James 4.10 says, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. And as we start to come down home stretch here in a few minutes, I want to start to come to a close um, with a, a little instructional passage that also speaks to humility and pride. The words of Jesus out of Luke 14, verses 7 through 11, where he says, When Jesus noticed how the guests chose the the places of honor, he told them a parable. When you are invited to a wedding banquet, do not sit in the place of honor in case someone more distinguished than you has been invited. Then the host who invited both of you will come and tell you, Give this man your seat. And in humiliation, you will have to take the last place. But when you are invited, go sit in the last place so that your host will come and tell you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in front of everyone at the table with you. For, and here it is again, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. All right, so... In this last passage that I'm giving you today, um, this is instructional. um, Instruction to keep humility in the forefront of our minds and our social interactions and not try to elevate ourselves in some way. So let me give you an example of that. Um, I was listening to Keith Moore, Pastor Keith Moore, uh, talk about this very thing on, on one teaching. And he said one Sunday... I can't remember if it was before the service or after, but one Sunday a man called out to him from across the room and said, hey, pastor, come here, I want to talk to you. And the man made no effort to approach Pastor Keith and called out to him and expected Pastor Keith to walk across the room and and approach him instead, which Pastor Keith graciously did. And the man just basically wanted to tell Pastor Keith a thing or two about his own spiritual insight. Okay. Well, Pastor Keith walked away from that conversation and said that he felt like the Spirit of God said to him, I'm not happy with the way you let that man treat you. He dishonored me by the way you let him dishonor you. 
Hmm. And he said that, Pastor Keith said that he had to repent right then and there. Now, now let me qualify. It's not that Pastor Keith should have reprimanded the man right then and there in front of everyone. But folks, there are social graces and protocols that we should want to adhere to for the sake of other people and for the sake of good manners. Don't you agree with that? Okay. So since I use that example, let me just help you along those lines for those of you that may not be familiar with those social graces, because I do find that social graces are being eroded in our culture today. Um, and so let me just help you out with that for those of you that may not be familiar with what to do in a situation like that. So if you want to talk to someone, do them the courtesy of approaching them. Okay? Don't ask them to walk across the room to, to talk to you. You walk across the room and approach them. And if they happen to be standing there talking to someone, stand by silently for a moment. Stand by silently for a moment. And then when there's a break in the action, you can say something like, pardon me, may I break in here for just a moment and uh, borrow you for just a brief second? You see, that's a mark of humility because you're bowing to the will of the other person and uh, not expecting the other person to bow to your will. Does that make sense? Okay. The great Andrew Murray once wrote that True humility before God is best demonstrated in humility before people. True humility before God is best demonstrated in humility before people. When we can learn that lesson, folks, we'll be on our way. And I've heard some people say things like this, well, I submit to God alone. I don't submit to any person. <laughs> well, then they don't really submit to God. Because clearly, God's word teaches that if we really want to humble ourselves and submit to God, then that's going to involve humbling ourselves before people. Very clearly, the Bible teaches that. And you know what? Let me just say this about people who say things like that. Um, that's a really, really foolish thing to say. Because you're going to have to submit to someone sooner or later one way or the other, or like that young man that we talked about last week, you might find yourself uh, submitting to the will of a county judge. Okay? You're going to submit to police officers, bosses, if you want to keep a job anyway, judges. You're going to submit to a lot of people. So to say, I submit to God only, but I don't submit to people, that's a very ignorant statement. And it's an untrue one because those very same people that say that sort of thing, they do submit to people if they want to keep their jobs anyway. They even submit to their customers if they own their own business. Okay? That's a very foolish thing to say. Now, allow me to give you some more advice here kind of along these lines that will help you out. Uh, different example this time, but certainly related. If, if you have a bone to pick with someone, as an example, first, ask the Holy Spirit if this is even worth addressing at all. Because it might not be. Okay? There's some things that you just need to let go for the sake of goodwill, folks. So you should take a day or two to pray about it before you move on it because your temper may be too involved and you may need some time to cool off. All right? But if it's important enough to address, if it's truly important enough to address, then ask for an in-person conversation. Okay? And that in-person conversation will force you to be more respectful, even if you're still mad. But 
if you just pop off and send someone a scathing email or text or Facebook message, you're not going to be as sensitive to social graces, and it's going to blow up in your face probably. Unless the person that's receiving that is a very humble, very gracious, and very patient person. Okay? But there's not too many of those that are around that are that gracious to receive a scathing email or text without responding to it in some way. See, I have found, listen to this, I have found that so many people will hide behind the safety of their keyboards and not be man or woman enough to face you. And folks, I just have to be honest with you and tell you, that's cowardly, if you'll pardon my frankness. That's cowardly. So in this point, if there has to be a difficult confrontation, then do it in person or at least by phone so they can hear your vocal intonations. Okay? And don't hide behind the safety of your keyboard because things tend to escalate that way. I mean, even if you're a really good writer and you just comb through your letter and just word it really not nicely, things come across in writing sometimes, since they can't see your facial expression and they can't hear your tone of voice, they read things into it that aren't there. I think I told you this story one time, um, taking a little longer with coming down home stretch, but I'll try to wrap this up here real, real soon. But this example just came to me. Years ago, when we were in a, in a different building, this is like two buildings ago when our ministry was still young, um, <laughs> these two ladies were talking about me in email form in a not very nice way. He ought to be doing this. He ought to be doing that. Why does he do that? And as the Lord would have it, they inadvertently copied me on that email. <laughs> yeah. Oops. Now, I was extremely gracious. I could have lit into them, and I would have been justified in doing so, because what they were doing was extremely damaging to our fellowship, because these were two people that were pretty high-profile people in our congregation. And I would have been very justified to just light into them and rebuke them harshly, but I didn't do that. Um, at this time in my ministry, um, I was still doing a lot of work via email, even with, if, it was, if people like emailed me and like read me the riot act, I would respond to them in email and try to smooth it over. I realized that never works. So if people send me a, a scathing email, I may just put, uh, sorry you feel that way. Here's some resources you might want to look at. God bless you. And I won't even address all the rude stuff they say in their email. So I don't, I don't do that anymore. But at this time, I was still doing that sort of thing. So I sent this woman an email um, and listen, this email was dripping with praise for her. I honestly felt like when she read this email, she was going to feel great about herself and great about our relationship. So I, I had I, this huge section of just praise for her, just appreciate all that you do, blah, blah, blah. Then I had about two or three sentences of a little bit of guidance and correction where she could be doing things a little bit differently, where that, that email communication with this other person in our congregation was concerned. And then I ended the email with a lot more um, just dripping with praise for her. And I felt so good about this email because I worded it so well. I was like, man, this is going to be great. And that's not what happened. Uh -huh. She had a meltdown 
Melna, I understand she cried for two days. And we had to get together with her and her husband and some other, others of our leaders at our church to try to smooth things over, and they still left the church. And the whole thing was initiated by that email that she and her, this other lady, were having roast pastor in this. I mean, it wasn't even my fault, right? But yet, when I corrected her on it, um, wow. So... Have those types of, if you need to even have a conversation at all, don't do it by email or text. Uh, do it in person if possible. Because, you know, again, people can hide behind the safety of their emails and texts and social media and say things they would never say to you face to face. And, you know, on this note, I have just got to share with you what uh, former heavyweight boxer Mike Tyson said on this topic. Now, he's not a person I would normally, you know, take wisdom from or quote, but on this point, he really got it right. He, listen to this. He said, social media has made you all way too comfortable disrespecting people and not getting punched in the face for it. <laughs> Man, that is the truth. That is the truth. I'm almost done here, but I want to tell you about something I read about Mark Twain, the, the author. And Mark Twain was a hothead. And he would get mad at people and write them these blistering letters, which ultimately never did any harm because when he wasn't looking, his wife lifted those letters out of the mail pile and never sent them. Because <laughs> she knew the damage they would do. So we can learn a lot from our lives. Thank you, wives, for protecting your husbands sometimes. Thank God for our wives. But maybe there's a lesson in there for us. See, if you get hot at someone like that, maybe go ahead and write your blistering letter and blow off some steam, but then hit the delete button and not send it. Praise God. Folks, this pride thing just has to die if we're going to make progress in the Lord. But I think we are making progress in the Lord right now, wouldn't you say? So listen, God loves you, gang, so much. And he's setting us up from some wonderful blessings ahead. As I said at the outset of our teaching today, he's not trying to reprimand us. He's trying to get us in a place where we enjoy more of his blessings, more of his favor, and not harm ourselves. Just like a parent will tell a, a child, don't put your finger in, in, a, in a light socket or in the, the power outlet. Don't touch the stove when it's hot. It's not because you're, the parent's trying to keep the child from having fun. They're trying to protect them and let them live a blessed life and grow up and not kill themselves, right? And that's what God is doing for us. It's not a reprimand. He has some wonderful blessings ahead. Remember, he gives grace to the humble. And I believe that we are growing in humility right now, don't you? Praise God. Stand with me and let's pray. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Andy Robbins and Blessed Life Fellowship. For more teaching and ministry resources, go to the church website at www.blessedlifefellowship.org. Thanks for listening, and may God's grace and favor shine on you.